Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hi, I'm Raihan Salam with the Vice Podcast, and I'm joined today by Christopher Segoyan, Principal Technologist at the American Civil Liberties Union. Chris, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. Chris, I've known you for a little while, and though I wouldn't say I know you extremely well, uh, you've always struck me as a very mild-mannered, thoughtful, polite, decent guy. Thank you. And yet, I've, I recently learned that in 2006, uh, the FBI broke down your door and seized uh, some of your property. And I've got to wonder, the FBI doesn't do that for no reason at all. Uh, presumably, they had some reason to believe that you represented some kind of threat. So, so what exactly was going on? In 2006, I made a website that, um, that demonstrated a failure of the TSA and, and the airlines to secure boarding passes. Uh, in essence, anyone with Photoshop or an easily available computer program could make their own boarding pass and circumvent what was then a fairly secretive no-fly list. So certain people were not permitted to get on airplanes. Um, so I, I made a website that manufactured boarding passes. Anyone who visited the website could make their own boarding pass, pick their name, uh, the default name if you didn't choose another one was Osama bin Laden to sort of demonstrate the, the absurdity of it. Um, and the, the issue caught the attention of the media. I think there were maybe 40 or 50,000 people who made boarding passes in a couple of days. Uh, and then a member of Congress. Uh, 40, 50,000 people. Visited the site and pressed the submit the button. Got it. I don't know how many printed it out. You know, I have no information about that. Uh, but so the, the, the issue got some press and then Congressman Ed Markey um, issued a statement. He was then on the Homeland Security Committee and issued a statement saying that I should be arrested. Um, and so I think that sort of um, led to some phone calls. So I assume you were delighted when Ed Markey was elected to the Senate recently. So two days after Markey issued that statement, he actually backtracked and said that TSA should give me a job instead. So <laughs> I, I don't think he had been fully briefed on the issue. Markey is is one of the clear leaders on privacy and civil liberties in, in, in Congress, and so I'm a big fan of his work. Um, obviously not super pleasant when a member of Congress says that you should go to jail. Um, and so I think there were some phone calls that were made. Uh, the FBI showed up at my house uh, in the afternoon. Uh, they asked if they could come in and search my computers. And of course, I'd seen law and order. So I said, you know, do you guys have a search warrant? And they said, no. I said, well, you should come back with a warrant. And they woke a judge up at 2 in the morning, got him to sign a warrant, and then came back that evening. Wait, so they woke a judge up at, so when did they actually arrive? You were asleep they, at the They time? were there twice. Got it, got it, got it. The first time they were there was maybe seven or eight in the evening. Got it. And then they came back later that evening when I wasn't there. I see, I see, I see. So, and they came back, you weren't there, and they were just able to go inside and, well, and do as they would. They, they, they broke through the door, and then they ransacked my house and took all my stuff. And did you know that they had been there once you got back home? 
When I came home the next day, I actually, um, as I walked to my front door, I saw the door had been broken, and I actually called the police because I thought my house had been broken into. And the, the police, you know, made me wait. So uh, they didn't leave you like a little note card on the table. Hey, it's the FBI. Well, we they did, I didn't go inside first. Uh, and the, once the police arrived and entered the house, they saw the search warrant tape to the dining table, and then they said, "Sorry, you're on your own." I see. I see. Fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, was it I just? This is a silly question, but was it a handwritten note, uh, or it was a formal warrant? It was like a kind of a typed-up document that had been taped to your. It, it was the, the search one. So it's, it's a form, and then there's handwritten sections, and then they had like an inventory of the property they've seized. Were you surprised when the FBI came knocking, or did you figure, you know what, I've done this thing, it's gotten some attention, not too shocking? I mean, the entire process was a shock. I never. I never thought that I would get that amount of press and then that I would attract the attention um, and scrutiny of, of law enforcement officials and members of Congress. I mean, I, I should say that within three weeks, the FBI dropped the entire investigation. I got my computers back in, in three weeks, which is unheard of in the area of sort of computer crime. Did they compensate you for breaking down your door? No, they did not. <laughs> so, boarding passes. I mean, so you were, did you, so you decided why don't, why don't we print up these boarding passes to determine whether or not this no-fly list is being properly enforced to determine who is on the list, or what was the, what was the goal? Before I'd made the website, Senator Chuck Schumer from New York had actually outlined the steps for this boarding pass trick on his website. And he'd been calling on TSA to add some authentication to the system. The, the, the underlying vulnerability was that um, someone could go to the airport with a fake boarding pass with their real, with their real name but that they, they manufactured for themselves, and then uh, another ticket in someone else's name that, that was legitimate and purchased use the fake boarding pass to get through security with their real driver's license, even if they were on the no-fly list, and then use the, um, the, the other boarding pass for a real ticket in someone else's name to get on the plane. I see. So th that was the, the sort of vulnerability. Schumer had outlined this problem on his website, explained step-by-step step how to engage in, in, this, in this shenanigan, um, and TSA had ignored him. Uh, and in many cases, you need a demonstration before people take things seriously. Um, and so what I sought to do was to help people to visualize how easy it was. This wasn't something that you, know, you needed to be an advanced hacker to do. This was something that anyone could do. Um, and, and the goal, in essence, was to, to emphasize the absurdity of the no-fly list. Did anyone actually pull it off? Did anyone actually use the technology, as far as you know? Uh, I'm not aware of anyone who used my website. Subsequently, I read about people who um, modified their Southwest Airlines boarding pass to change the group, the boarding group, so to, to make sure they got to the front of the line for boarding. Um, but, uh, you know, I, the people who visited my website didn't leave me any notes and, and send me emails. There are some people for whom having your door knocked down by the FBI would be kind of exhilarating uh, and maybe want to make you go further. There are others who would think, you know what, I should seek some other research agenda. Uh, this is rather much. Uh, perhaps I went too far and, you know, it was kind of playful and kind of what have you. I mean, which side of the spectrum did you fall on? Did you find it uh, more frightening or did you find it more exciting? Oh, I mean, it was, it was a terrifying experience. Um, but, you know, shortly after it happened, I was able to get two spectacular pro bono lawyers. Um, and then within a few weeks after it happened, once things calmed down, my, my PhD advisor at the time said, hey, you should take uh, a law class or two so that you can learn about the law and so this doesn't happen again. Uh, I mean, I, so at the time I was doing a PhD in computer security. I was actually um, designing 
uh, new phishing attacks. My, my research was on online fraud, and so we were, the, the idea was we would come up with the, the tricks before the bad guys would, and then we could defend against them. Um, and as you might imagine, that is a perilous area of, of research too. And so my advisor, after this experience, said, okay, you really should take you know, a class on copyright law and computer crime so that you can figure out where the line is. Um, and so I took a couple classes in the law, and that ended up turning into a minor in my PhD and, and, and really pushed me down this path where I am now at the intersection of uh, technology, law, and policy. You know, very few um, computer scientists can speak about what they do in English to policymakers or journalists or, or the lay public. Uh, and, and I really credit you know, those classes that I took and, and some of the other things that I did in helping me to acquire those skills. Did the computer security interest come from the fact that you were a bit of a troublemaker? I mean, was this, uh, were you interested in exploring vulnerabilities when you were growing up in your first encounters with computers? I mean, I've always sort of taken things apart. I would take locks apart and usually not assemble them back together again. Um, I would take computers apart. I've always been interested in sort of how things work. Uh, and so I think that may maybe that influenced things. I mean, I've, I've never really been um, that good with, with respecting the rules or, or authority. Um, and I think, I think activism has given me a, a healthy outlet for, for that. Well, one thing I find striking is that you know, we've had a variety of scandals relating to surveillance and uh, abuses of our civil liberties, yet the public seems pretty consistently disinterested and disengaged. Uh, we also have a little bit of a market test uh, in the sense of you know, cloud computing, uh, the fact that so many of us now rely on technologies through which we're actually surrendering uh, a lot of control over our data and our personal information. And people seem to be amazingly casual about doing it. When you think about the, you know, the passwords that people create for themselves, um, my password is password. My password is. Uh, is that confession know, now? It's not. Okay. It's not. <laughs> but, I, but it seems that people are, are kind of enormously casual about it, and if anything, they just kind of want more ease of use. You know what I mean? They, they just kind of want convenience. So if there's something that actually you know makes the process a little more frictiony, uh, you know, people will tend to skip that. So as someone who cares very deeply about privacy, uh, you know, what do you do about that? I mean, do you think this is a failure of education, or does it mean that your concerns are idiosyncratic and other people? fundamentally don't care. No, I mean, I think people are entirely rational. Uh, and I think the problem here is that um, the harms that, that come from either choosing a bad password or putting your data um, or giving your data to a company that keeps it in unencrypted format in the cloud, those harms are not immediately um, uh, perceivable when you engage in that action. Right? These are harms that come weeks or months later. In some cases, when something bad happens to you down the road, you don't realize the actual source of that harm. You don't realize that when you um, checked your email over an unencrypted connection at Starbucks, and then two months later someone breaks into your account and steals your identity, you don't see the connection between those two events, and so the, the feedback loop that would otherwise be present is broken. Companies don't compete on privacy. Companies don't compete on, on that feature of their products in the same way that they do on price or storage or features or their, the social network aspect to, to their stuff. Um, and so the market is broken as a result. Without salient uh, if privacy isn't a salient feature, companies are not going to compete on it, and the market won't function correctly. I mean, cloud computing by itself isn't inherently an evil thing. It's not even, I mean, in many ways it can be a more secure thing. Uh, most consumers and most small businesses don't have the resources to hire a $200,000 a year information security expert to work for them full time. If you put your data in Google servers, 
Google has 350 engineers doing nothing but security. They have a team of like a dozen people focusing solely on state-sponsored attacks. No, new, no news organization has a dozen people defending their information from the Chinese government. Um, and so if you put your data you know, in Google's cloud or give it to Amazon or one of these other large companies, you can sort of piggyback off of their security team. The problem is that in many cases, the products as designed or as at least given to consumers with the initial default settings are not secure out of the box. Does that make sense? I think it, I think it does. So what you're saying is that you know, kind of in theory, uh, this could be something. These could be institutions that are serving as our shields, as our protectors, uh, from criminals, uh, from foreign governments, perhaps, or any other exotic threat. Yet the problem is that these companies have to operate under the laws of the U.S. government. Uh, and it seems as though in many cases it is the U.S. government that is leaning on a lot of private providers. Um, and that is to some degree limiting their room for maneuver and the extent to which they can say, well, no, we're actually not going to give you access to this information. Is that your sense as well? So if you work in the privacy space, which I do, after a while, everyone in my, in my field eventually gets a favorite Eric Schmidt quote. Eric Schmidt was the CEO of Google, now the president of, of, of Google or the chairman, rather. My favorite Eric Schmidt quote is one in which he was asked by Rachel Maddow why the company doesn't do more to push back on government requests. And he says, you know, there's a problem with expecting us to do that, and that is that the government has guns and we don't. And actually, the fundamental problem here isn't that Google's in bed with the government or you know, Facebook's in bed with the government, because they're not. Um, the problem is, is that it's the business model that many of these Silicon Valley companies have adopted. Consumers don't pay for email. Consumers don't pay for search, they don't pay for social networking, they don't pay for Twitter, they don't pay for many of the online services they use, but in comparison, you know, people pay for postage stamps, they pay for FedEx, they pay for their, um, their home internet connections, their cell phone bills. What that means then is that these Silicon Valley firms to whom we entrust so much private information have an incentive to keep our information. The, 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 the business model they've adopted actually is one where we give them all of our private information and then they mine it and try and figure out what we're interested in and then deliver advertisements to us. Um, they could design products that are more privacy preserving, that are more resistant to government search and seizure. Google could build um, a product where, you know, if the government came and said, hey, tell me everything that Chris searched for last year, they would be able to say, sorry, we don't know. But that conflicts with their current business model, which is advertising supported services. Um, and as long as consumers are using services that are free, then these companies have this conflict. Where the companies can push back, they will. Where they can push back you know, in the courts, where they can publish transparency reports and try and let the public know about their role, they will generally do so. But on the tough issues, you know, how much data do we keep? Do we keep the data in encrypted form or do we keep the data in a form that we can readily access but which the government can readily access to? The companies tend to make the wrong choices for privacy because those are the ones that allow them to make money. One thing that I think people don't understand very well uh, is this idea of the third party rule. Uh, you know, so I think that to be a citizen in a kind of modern urban society, uh, there are certain prerequisites. Uh, you know, for example, it's very helpful to have a credit card. Uh, it's very helpful to have a cell phone. Uh, and these are all things that entail your entering into a relationship with some private company. But uh, my understanding is that, uh, you know, kind of under American jurisprudence, that entails not just sharing some of your information with your, your bank, your credit card provider, your cell phone provider. Uh, it involves implicitly surrendering control over uh, your information to the government as well? Can, can you explain it, uh, a little yeah, bit about so, that? So there's this loophole to the Fourth Amendment, in essence, and it's called the Third Party Doctrine. It comes from a Supreme Court case, actually a couple Supreme Court cases, 
and, and the gist is this. When you give your private information to a third party, whether it's a bank or uh, an email provider or, or some other company, the government has argued successfully b before the court uh, that you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information anymore, which means that the government can come and ask for it later, uh, and that that information won't, does it, won't be protected by the Fourth Amendment. So you can still have statutory protection. So if Congress passes a law that says that the government needs a warrant to get your email, that can be an additional level of protection. But the baseline, the, the baseline constitutional protections for your private communications go out the window when you give it to the to the to a third party. You know, those cases come from from de they're decades old. In, in an, How in far a, does that go? So does that mean that you know, for example, uh, you know, yeah, Gmail is going to be serving ads against the content uh, of my email, yet they've assured me that they are you know by no means you know kind of actively reading the contents of my email. Or have you. But does this mean that the government uh, can theoretically have access to the contents of my email? So email is something that didn't exist when the Supreme Court decided or created this third-party doctrine. There are appellate courts that have separately decided that email deserves special um, protection under the Fourth Amendment, but the metadata record, the information about who you communicate with, have not yet received these protections from uh, appellate courts. Mm -hmm. You know, this is an area where we're going to see a lot of litigation in the next few years. Um, Justice Sotomayor wrote a, a spectacular concurring opinion in uh, the US v. Jones, which is sort of a GPS tracking case a couple of years ago, where she said maybe it's time to re-examine the third party doctrine. I mean, that that entire regime, this entire system where the government can just come and ask for information from these third parties, that's from you know decades ago when consumers had very little information that was shared with their parties. This is another issue. Uh, you know, a few months ago there was a minor scandal when people understood that if you take a look at your iPhone, uh, sort of buried deep within it is a you know very impressive record of everywhere that phone has been, which in many cases for a modern urban type is going to be everywhere you as an individual have been. Now, am I correct in assuming that the government has access to that kind of detailed GPS data about where your phone has been? So the, the iPhone location scandal a couple of years ago, um, essentially what was happening was that, that the cell towers or Wi-Fi hotspots that your phone saw nearby, that information was retained on your phone, which meant that if you were later arrested and the police, or later stopped and the police searched your phone, they could download that information. There are, in fact, companies that provide off-the-shelf forensics tools, surveillance tools to law enforcement agencies. And um, unfortunately, courts around the country have, uh, in many places, ruled that the government can, in fact, seize your phone and search it for unrelated uh, things if you're arrested. What is the state of the law uh, with regard to, you know, I haven't seized the person's phone, uh, but I want to get a sense of her location at any given time, uh, given that, you know, theoretically, uh, I assume that your telecom provider is able to get that data? So I should make clear, I'm not a lawyer. I'm a computer scientist who just spends so much time with lawyers that I understand more about the law than most, but this is not legal advice. Um, it's a complex uh, question because the word location doesn't appear in our privacy laws. Our, our laws are the laws in this space with regard to when the government can get your information date back to 1986. However, as interpreted by the courts and, and per the Department of Justice's policy, uh, if the government wishes to get real-time information of where you are in this moment or in the future, they need a warrant if it's derived from like a GPS chip or multiple towers. However, if the government wants to find out where you were last week or in fact where you were for the last six months, uh, they can get that with a lesser court order 
uh, one where they have to go to a judge, but they only have to say that the information is relevant and material to an investigation. So you don't even have to be a suspect, they just have to say the information is relevant. And there are a huge amount of these orders. The phone companies are inundated with requests for location data. They're, I mean, they're crushed uh, by these number of requests, and so they've had to sort of set up these automated processes to, to let the police have self-service access because the phone company employees just cannot deal with the scale of the requests they're receiving. Uh, do you have any sense of what the volume of these requests is? We don't have really good data. Um, last year, Ed Markey, uh, the, the member of Congress, wrote letters to all, all of the Your phone companies, my, my old friend, um, wrote letters to all of the phone companies and said, hey, so how many surveillance requests do you get a year from law enforcement agencies? Of the big four carriers, three replied with numbers. T-Mobile basically told them to get lost. Uh, of the big three, AT&T, Verizon, and Sprint, the companies collectively get about 1.3 million requests a year. Um, surveillance has gotten really easy. You know, the police don't have to tell you anymore. They don't have to, you know, sit outside your house in an unmarked van. The police don't climb telephone poles to tap phone lines anymore. Most surveillance happens from an air-conditioned you know, building, and the police get this stuff from the telecommunications companies. Well, a lot of people will react, well, well look, I mean, we have serious security concerns. Uh, there's a terrorist threat, uh, and there are also various other uh, sophisticated criminal organizations that are at work. Uh, and you know, I imagine folks in the government are going to say, we need this authority. This authority greatly facilitates our ability to protect the broader public. Uh, and no one who is not engaged in illicit activity has anything to fear from uh, this kind of data collection. Um, what would you, how would you respond to that? We have two sort of separate sets of, of legal rules depending on whether the police are investigating a crime or whether the intelligence uh, community is investigating terrorism. Right? So the terrorist issue should be taken off the table because our aging privacy laws, our aging surveillance laws, don't even apply to the intelligence services. Uh, so the, the, the law that allows the, uh, the police to obtain your location data, your historical location data, with a mere relevancy standard, that doesn't involve terrorism at all. That doesn't involve foreign spies or, or you know, cyber hacking by foreign governments. That, all that goes out of the window. We're talking about vanilla law enforcement. You know, my view isn't that the, this information should be off limits to the police. I just think they should have to go to a judge and get a warrant. I mean, you know, at the founding of this country, at the, at the time of, 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 the, of the founding, our founding fathers, you know, were concerned about the abuse of these authorities by the state. Now, in, in those days, you know, there weren't phone companies, um, and, and the government just simply didn't have access to the kinds of data that it did now. But even then, they were worried about, you know, these British uh, troops going door to door with general warrants. They were worried then, and the solution then was a, you know, a warrant with particularized information. We should have that today. If the government wants to find out your emails, they should have to get a warrant. If they want to get your location information, they should have to get a warrant. If they want to find out what you searched for or who you talked to, they should have to get a warrant too. What do you see as the worst case scenario? I mean, given that you just have this very low relevancy standard, uh, you know, what might abuses of this law enforcement power look like? You know, the, the abuses you're going to see at the federal level are going to be different than the abuses you're going to see at the state and local level simply because the feds, you know, the feds generally have better resources and they tend to have, you know, they have inspectors general and they have some kind of oversight where the local folks really don't have that. You know, at the local level you'll see you know, police looking up information about their ex-wives or, or ex-husbands or, you know, the, the, the son who's dating their, their daughter. You know, you'll, you'll see petty stuff. We don't have a huge amount of data about that, but then we don't have a huge amount of, of information about how these surveillance powers are being used. Um, these, this information is so invasive 
uh, and, and provide such a detailed picture to the government that it also may chill um, protected First Amendment activities. If you know that your information is going to end up in a government database, you may be less likely to, you know, to go to that gay bookstore or to go to that AA meeting. People will, will modify their behavior if they're, if they're fearful of the government's gaze, whether or not the government actually looks at the data they collect in the first place. One of the reasons why there's been a lot of attention on civil liberties and privacy recently uh, is because of recent revelations uh, from a Booz Allen Hamilton contractor, a gentleman called Edward Snowden. I assume that many of our, our viewers will be aware of him. Um, and uh, his revelations concerning the extent uh, of uh, uh, something called the PRISM program and also the collection of domestic metadata. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on both? Sure. So um, the Snowden releases, the, the, these documents that he provided to, to journalists, have provided us for the first time um, a real glimpse at the scale uh, and depth of the NSA's surveillance, both domestic and foreign. The two big programs that he revealed, one targets the contents of communications um, uh, where at least one end is a, is a foreign uh, communication. So uh, it could be someone in Afghanistan talking to someone else in Afghanistan, or it could be someone in Yemen talking to someone in Brooklyn. Um, the government is supposed to target the foreign end, but they can, of course, get uh, the full communication. Could it be someone in Las Vegas talking to someone in Paris? Yes. As, but the government wouldn't be targeting the person in Las Vegas. They'd be targeting the person in, in Paris. Um, but then, of course, both ends of the, of the phone call end up in this database. So we, we have this, this program where the government is, is collecting the contents of communications about foreign communications, even though there may be Americans in the, that database. And then separately, the government has been collecting what's called a metadata database. This is information about who you talk to, not what you say, um, both telephone calls and apparently emails we just learned uh, in the last week or so. Um, and they've obtained this information for every American in the country. All the phone companies have either provided information or the government's been able to get it in other ways. And so NSA has this database of every phone call made in the country. You know, everyone who's called an abortion clinic or their psychiatrist or you know, an AA meeting or a phone sex hotline at 2 in the morning, that information is sitting in an NSA database. And what they've told us since is, well, don't worry, there's only 22 NSA employees who are allowed to search through this data. But it's all sitting there. Now, were you surprised by either revelation? Um, the PRISM program, as unpleasant as it is, and, and I think perhaps even um, you know, there, there are people who could argue that this, uh, I think we at the ACLU uh, will argue that this violates the Fourth Amendment, but it is outlined in um, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act and, and later the FISA Amendments Act, which was passed in 2008. It sort of outlined the prison program. I mean, the folks at NSA went to Congress and said, hey, look, we want to be able to get these communications where, you know, these are foreigners who are using American communication services like Gmail. We should be able to easily get these things. And Congress authorized that. And, you know, we can have a debate about whether that law should have been passed and whether that law is, in fact, constitutional. Um, but it wasn't a surprise. To be clear, uh, when you're talking about someone on the other end, the foreign side of this uh, conversation, uh, uh, you know, are they limiting this to kind of a small number of designated targets? Or uh, you know, kind of, does PRISM appear to be kind of much broader in scope? We don't know. 
we, you know, we only have uh, a few leaks from, from these, these documents that, that Snowden released. We don't have a full picture. We don't know which countries they've targeted. We know, for example, that they've targeted Afghanistan, all communications coming in and out of Afghanistan. Regardless. So, I mean, whether or not uh, the Afghan in question, uh, you know, is a civilian who runs a tea shop, you know, that communication is being If, if it's an American, you know, talking to someone in Afghanistan, a, a cousin about, you know, the, the football scores, that will be collected. Um, uh, and, and so that's the, the PRISM program. And I, although I should note, PRISM is the, the sort of the web browser interface that they use to search the database. The underlying collection is named something else. It has some classified code named PRISM. It just sounds sexy, so everyone's been using that. Um, the, the other program of this metadata program, the domestic collection of information about every American's phone calls, that was actually really surprising. I, even though I've been studying surveillance for you know, more than six years, that blew my mind. And, and in fact, you know, just a few years ago... What blew your mind about it? Was it the brazenness of it? Was it the fact that they did something that was... I mean, what, what, what was so surprising? You read the statute, and you don't come away with the, with, with the impression that that's what it authorizes. The, the PRISM program is authorized by that statute. It may still be unconstitutional, but it's authorized by the statute, whereas the, the, the metadata program you read the statute, you have no idea that that's what they, that, that's what they could even do. Yet the federal government claims that they have the legal authority to... So a few years ago, a few, a few senators started warning the public, and these are senators who are on the Intelligence Committee, so they had to sort of give coded warnings, and they said that there was a secret reinterpretation of the Patriot Act by the Department of Justice. They couldn't tell the public what it was, but that the public would, would be shocked when they found out how it was being used and the scale with which the that government... sounds kind of frustrating. It sounds like a little bit of a tease, but uh, it's yeah, a so you're, tease. you're supposed to like guess which, uh, what so, the abuse was. So yeah. Ron Wyden was one of the senators who was issuing these warnings, and he said, look, you know, this... This, this, this secret interpretation of the law will blow your mind. It's, you know, it's, it's shocking how, how the government's twisted the law. You know, the, the denials from uh, the director of national intelligence and others in the community, others in the intelligence community, have been, we are not collecting location information under this program. Always under this program. And so there are other programs that they've not yet revealed. Um, we still don't know uh, the, the true extent of the NSA's domestic surveillance activities. I would bet money that they're collecting credit card information. And one of the documents that Snowden re revealed or, or provided to Glenn Greenwald at The Guardian strongly hints at at least citywide location data acquisition by the government. So it, the, the text in this document suggests that NSA gets information revealing at least which city every American cell phone is in, whether so, you're in New York or San Francisco, that kind of thing. So with regard to the domestic metadata program, I mean, so, okay, they claim there are 22 employees who have uh, the ability to search this. And, you know, uh, I assume that they have some procedure uh, you know, governing whether or not they're able to access it. They can't just access it willy-nilly. Uh, what has the government disclosed about uh, the procedures for accessing this uh, domestic metadata? So we've been told that they only search through this data database for terrorist-related queries, so they're not using it to, to look for other things. I mean, to be, to be honest, the track record of intelligence officials over the last month when describing this program and their activities in general uh, has been so deceptive uh, that I, I, wouldn't, I don't take their word uh, at face value anymore. Um, they have very carefully worded all of their statements that say one thing and, and mean something, something very different, that when they say they're not collecting location data, I don't believe them. When they say you know, that they are using this only for terrorist-related uh, investigations, I don't believe them. But what, what they are saying is they are only looking through the domestic uh, telephone metadata for, uh, for, for terrorist cases. 
so what is, is there anything in particular that's led you to be distrustful of them? Like, is there any kind of particular lie? Is there any particular elision or that that struck you? So the you know the, the one that's been on TV has been um, the uh, director of national intelligence, James Clapper, being asked by Senator Wyden whether NSA is collecting information on millions of Americans, and then him saying no, not at all, uh, and then later acknowledging when this Snowden when these Snowden documents were revealed acknowledging that it was the least untruthful answer that he could give to, to the committee. Um, that was, is of course the, the, the best example, the one where you have actually someone in essence lying to Congress. What I find interesting about the landscape that you're describing is that it's not the government itself it is rather the government in collaboration with a lot of private enterprises uh, that we rely on in our daily life. Um, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, the fact that there seems to be this, this kind of strange merger of authority, all of these kind of consumer brands uh, that we trust in our daily lives uh, being the vehicles uh, of what some see as an invasion of their privacy. I mean, there are not enough FBI agents to conduct the surveillance that the government does if they had to do it themselves. If the FBI had to follow you around in a vehicle, if they had to show up outside your house and attach an alligator clip to your phone line, they couldn't collect the information on the scale they do. By partnering with, or in many cases, coercing communications companies into providing this assistance, the government is able to achieve surveillance at a scale that would never before have been able to do at a very low cost. Right? And some of the companies you know, begrudgingly go along with it, Others, you know, enthusiastically participate. So the, the, the phone companies, where they have flexibility in the law, gen generally tend to go pro-government, and the internet companies, where there's some flexibility in the law, generally tend to go pro-user. Um, the phone companies have been providing wiretapping assistance for more what than years. What do you think that is? Is it because the phone companies have physical assets and uh, you know, they're more concerned about regulatory authority and they feel more vulnerable for that reason? Uh, or I mean, why would there be that divergence between the telecommunications companies and the internet companies? I think it's three things. The first is that the phone companies have been around for more than 100 years. The first wiretaps were in the 18, 1890s in New York. Um, the phone companies sort of as institutions are comfortable with surveillance, with, with this role. They've been working with law enforcement for a very long time. They're accustomed to it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is regulation. The, the, the telephone industry and the, the telecommunications industry is a heavily regulated industry. If you are a wireless carrier, you are relying on the FCC for spectrum. If you are running undersea cables between countries, you need permission of every country that the, that the cable sort of comes on shore. If you are operating satellite networks, you need permission to build a satellite landing station, and the government can withhold that permission if you don't play by the so rules. So a company with a reputation for obstreperousness might endanger its viability, its ability to kind of get these contracts and what have you sort of get access to spectrum. I mean, there have been instances, so the, the best example is of a, a satellite phone company. They launched like a you know, series of satellites. They were gonna do satellite to earth communications. They had the satellites in space you know, the interest is due every month, the banks are requiring payment, and the FCC d was holding, holding them back from offering service in the US to consumers because they wouldn't put a, a, a downlink station where the, the signals would come back to Earth in the United States. The company wanted to put, this is Iridium, they wanted to put uh, their ground link station in Canada, and that meant the FBI wouldn't have easy access to it. Was that part of their decision? Uh, they wanted to put it in Canada so as to... They, they just wanted to put it in Canada. Right, and right, right. The, the, the FBI and the FCC, in, in, in collaboration, 
slowed down their approval until they agreed to also put a station in the US. We see this for fiber optic cables going under the ocean all the time. If you want to get permission from the FCC, you have to play by their rules, you have to have US employees with security clearances, you have to allow DOJ to do visits with 30 minutes notice, you have to retain data a certain number of months. I mean, you know, they use the, the licensing approval process as a way to extract concessions that are favorable to U.S. law enforcement. Just to be cynical for a moment, uh, so you said that these companies have to hire people with security clearance. Uh, now, uh, could you posit that you know there's a culture of people who work in national security and intelligence uh, who to some degree are looking out for other people who work in national security and intelligence, or is that uh, you know, uh, too, no, this too cynical of you? this isn't cronyism. They just mm -hmm. want someone they can trust who they can, when they deliver the, 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 the secret FISA order to, isn't going to go and blab it. Um, you know, to someone else. If once you have a security clearance, you protect that because that is your livelihood. If you lose your clearance, you no longer get the cleared jobs. So I mean, I, I don't. Yeah. There's enough problems in this space that I don't need to, to find conspiracies. <laughs> right. And you mentioned so those were those so were two. Those are two. And then yeah. the third thing is really the business model. The internet companies, because they depend on behavior advertising, they don't want to give their users any reason to distrust them. They depend on the massive data collection they, that they have. They depend on users trusting them with their data. They don't want users to have any additional reason to not want to, to give them their, their information. And, and, and so you know, that sort of, I think, hints at, um, at why they, they fight so publicly. You know, they, they could fight quietly behind the scenes, but you know, when Google just a, a couple weeks ago you know, filed this order with the FISA court asking um, to, to be able to publish aggregate statistics about FISA requests, they provided a copy of that or, or that, that, um, that court application to journalists around the country. Right? They wanted press showing you know, Google fights secret government surveillance. That's good for their brand, particularly after a month of just nonstop brand damage. One issue, however, is that uh, you know, if you have uh, a slew of consumer internet companies that are competing with each other, if they are all required uh, to make these disclosures, then presumably that doesn't create a competitive disadvantage for any one company relative to another. No, but it still makes them look bad. I mean. It, Google, of course, is in competition with Microsoft and Yahoo and Facebook, but they're also in competition with maybe like non-cloud-based services, right? You can upload your documents to Dropbox or you can keep them on an external hard drive. You don't need to put your information in the cloud. And so I think these companies don't want to give consumers any reason to, to not trust their services. It's also important to understand that in the context of the sort of global concern about privacy right now after PRISM, you know, there are European governments and European activists who for years have been saying that it's crazy to put their citizens' data in U.S. cloud computing company servers, and now all of their fears have turned out to be true. You know, we're seeing French and German IT companies saying, hey, you know, we should be keep, you should be putting your data in our servers instead of sending it to the United States. So there's there's a bit of competition. This in is that fascinating. Market. So I mean, you know, kind of when you're talking about companies like Google and Yahoo and what have you, they have very substantial international operations. Uh, and you know, so what you're suggesting is that the federal government surveillance policies could actually damage these companies because uh, you know, kind of people in foreign countries might believe that this really is an arm of the American government in effect because they're being coerced in these various ways. So if I'm in China, for example, uh, you know, and I'm concerned about um, you know, the proliferation of kind of US internet companies, is that a fair characterization? I mean, I think you're, you're generally right. Um, 
the China is a really interesting example because for years the Chinese government has sort of pushed their own users towards Chinese native services, right? So there's for the similar reasons, I assume, because they have more leverage over their domestic internet companies. It may have been for filtering mm -hmm. because they didn't want people, you know, wanted to be able to monitor their own citizens. But one either unintended or intended side effect of the Chinese usage of domestic Chinese services is that the U.S. government isn't able to readily surveil Chinese internet users by calling up Google or calling up Yahoo. You know, a, a, a German citizen who... They've become a harder target than they would be otherwise. A German citizen who uses Twitter, Gmail, and Facebook, their communications can be readily obtained by the U.S. government. They may as well be an American. Well, actually, it's worse because they have fewer protections under U.S. law. Um, but a Chinese user who's using a Chinese search engine, a Chinese social networking site, the U.S. can't just call up, you know, uh, uh, one of the Chinese companies and ask for information. They're going to say no. Um, this Chinese uh, approach to heavily promoting and, in some cases, blocking access to Western companies has had the consequence of locking out um, the NSA and others. That doesn't mean the NSA goes dark. It just means they hack into people's computers instead of just calling up AT&T. This or is Google. fascinating because I think that, generally speaking, when you see reporting the business press about uh, you know China sports Baidu over Google or what have you, it tends to be seen through the lens of free trade. Uh, you know the Chinese, you know, kind of are restricting. But but it, it's interesting. So I mean, there's this whole other national security dimension to it, which from the Chinese perspective sounds. Deeply sensible. And look, just last fall, November of, or October or November of last year, there was a congressional hearing in which the intelligence, the House Intelligence Committee, was freaking out about the prospect of Chinese electronics companies selling networking equipment to U.S. companies. Huawei and ZTE are these two big companies, and you know they were saying, you know, we don't want these these companies selling equipment in the U.S. It's got back doors. It'll allow the Chinese government to have secret access to our communications. You know, the Chinese can make those same claims about company, about Google and Facebook and Microsoft. I mean, it doesn't actually matter whether Google's server is in Mountain View, California, or Dublin, or Zurich, or some European capital. The engineers in California have access to the data everywhere in the world, in every Google data center or every Facebook data center, and they can be compelled to reach out and bring the data back to the U.S. This is, somewhat, this is a slightly different question, but you know, I wonder, when you're looking at governments collecting data, like this domestic metadata that you've described, uh, one concern might be that governments haven't always done a spectacularly good job of protecting this information, even for themselves. Uh, some years ago, you had a, a minor scandal in which the National Health Service in Britain, uh, you know, compromised its data and sort of data that I think that uh, you know its its users had assumed would be private was kind of released. Um, the Chinese seem to have done an excellent job uh, of acquiring state secrets, uh, you know, concerning uh, defense programs and what have you. So, I mean, does government collection of this data actually create a vulnerability to foreign governments? So I think what you're hinting at, and you're, you're definitely going in the right direction, is that there's a conflict between cybersecurity and surveillance. The, the surveillance basically is, is, a, is the insertion of a back door. If, a, if the government is going to be able to wiretap phones, then it means the phone company needs to have access to your phone calls. And that's an ability that someone else could access by breaking into, into the system. And there's solid examples of surveillance systems placed there at the government's request, being compromised by by other governments or other actors. The, t t the two best examples, um, during the Olympics in 2004 in Greece, an unknown entity, suspected to be NSA, hacked into the network of Vodafone Greece and secretly wiretapped the Greek prime minister and members of his cabinet using the surveillance features in purchased by the, the phone company. They'd been purchased for the Greek government's benefit. Someone else broke in and, and 
secretly use them. And then just a few months ago, we learned that in 2010, when Google was hacked by the Chinese, Google had, had revealed since they were, they were hacked. In fact, the Chinese gained access to Google's FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act database, letting the Chinese know which, which people the US government was monitoring, which Chinese agents the US government was monitoring. <laughs> I mean, That's it, not funny. It's very difficult to protect a system when you have to allow the government to access those communications at will. Um, and, and there is a big debate going on right now, uh, both in Washington and amongst uh, technologists about whether you prioritize cybersecurity or whether you prioritize surveillance. Most policymakers, most, most folks in Congress don't yet realize that a system that is easy to surveil is also a system that is easy to break into. But given the um, weight of the cybersecurity issue in Washington, given you know, the, the fear of China, um, folks are going to have to start to wake up to the fact that you know, if we want to defend our systems, we need to accept that that's going to hit law enforcement law enforcement's ability to access those, those systems and those communications too. You know, a system that protects you from the Chinese, system that protects your emails and your data from Chinese hackers also protects your data from the FBI. The, the government has wanted to get its cake and, and to eat it too. They've wanted to have you know, easy access for the FBI, but also not wanting to have hackers getting the information. That's just that's a fiction. There's no way to design a system to do both of those things. You know, my hope is that the changing climate around cybersecurity will force folks to realize this and to, in fact, prioritize cybersecurity. We can do more as a country to protect our systems, to encourage the adoption of, of good practices, and in, if encouragement doesn't work, to punish companies that don't protect their customers' information. But folks need to wake up to the fact that that is going to have an impact on law enforcement. This is a speculative question, but if the public doesn't get engaged with these issues, if there isn't any pushback, uh, you know, technology is advancing, Moore's Law is still at work, the ability to engage in surveillance is presumably going to increase over time. So, I mean, what do you see as some of the worst case scenarios? Uh, if there isn't pushback, if the national security state keeps rumbling along and gathering as much data as it can? I mean, so I think what's going to happen first is that the contracts that the cloud computing companies have been trying to pursue in Europe are going to dry up. Uh, and the only way that Amazon and Google uh, and these other cloud companies, uh, the only chance they have of, of protecting their, their markets there in, in Europe and Asia and these other countries is to roll out products that are secure out of the box, that not only deny the US government access to, the, to those informa that information, but all governments access to that information. There are technologies that could be rolled out today that allow you to upload your data to the cloud and not allow even the cloud computing company to see it. I mean, it sounds like magic, but there, there really are these technologies. Um, companies haven't rolled them out up until now because there hasn't really been a business need because consumers haven't been clamoring for it. I think we're going to see European governments and European businesses demanding these. Otherwise, you know, Google and Facebook and these other companies are going to lose access to those markets. And I think once consumers in Europe get those tools, I think it's only going to be natural that consumers in the U.S. are going to get them too. You know, when the Europeans pass strict environmental controls, American consumers get to piggyback off of those because companies don't want to make one product for the European market and one product for the U.S. market. Um, I think we're going to see more and more secure technologies being rolled out. Um, you know, the phone companies are clearly not interested in providing secure communications well, that tools. Sounds, that sounds not like a worst case scenario, but rather as though American consumers are going to be rescued by the Europeans. So by European governments that are concerned about, um, you know, U.S. government surveillance. So, I mean, does that mean that, you know, we should relax? 
Uh, we shouldn't relax. So that, the worst case scenario is we don't get protections until someone else does it. The best case scenario is we get them here because our, our political leaders realize this is an important issue. Um, I mean, I guess there's a true worst case scenario, which is that we end up living in a horrible surveillance state uh, and the government installs a camera in every bedroom. I mean, or, or rather the government just takes advantage of the camera that's built into every smartphone. Um, you know, th those dystopian futures, while they may be real and may be coming, I try not to think about them too much. I, I would like to sleep well at night. Um, look, you know, uh, the, the sort of big trends that are coming, I, I do think what happens in Europe and, and Asia with regard to their concerns about their security is gonna have a big impact down the road. I think the other big, huge trend that's coming uh, is a, a coming awareness of, of the fact that um, US law enforcement agencies are hacking into computers of their own citizens. It's not, this cyber war isn't just about you know, the US breaking into Iran's computers and China breaking into US defense contractors. Law enforcement agencies are uh, developing and acquiring commercial malware that they use to break into the computers of targets when they cannot access communication or data on those computers with through other means. And so just a few months ago, we had a judge in Texas who received an application from the FBI to hack into the computer of a target, secretly enable the webcam, steal emails, search engine queries, web browsing information from the computer without any knowledge of the target. And this didn't involve a request to Google or a request to Facebook. This was malware. This is, these are hacking tools that are being acquired or developed by law enforcement agencies in the US and in, in, government, in countries around the world. I think we're gonna start to see hacking as just yet another tool in the surveillance arsenal of governments. And um, I don't think folks are quite ready to accept that yet. When we think about governments and cybersecurity, we think of governments in this role of wanting to make cybersecurity better. So how should we as citizens and consumers engage with the companies uh, to whom we hand over substantial amounts of data? I mean, is that, you know, because, you know, we tend to be talking about what the federal government is up to and what have you, but, I mean, should recent revelations lead us to rethink the information we're willing to hand over to our credit card providers, cell phone providers, et cetera? You know, there isn't really much competition between the credit card companies. It's not like Amex is more privacy preserving than, than Visa. I mean, it's, you know, all the phone companies suck equally, for, 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 you know, uh, when it comes to government. Should we all start using Bitcoin? So what I, what I will say is that this model of getting services for free needs to go. We need to start paying for email. We need to start paying for search. We need to start paying for social networking. And I'm not saying you need to pay thousands of dollars for you know, gold-plated email, but $5 uh, a year for social networking or $20 a year for email would at least change the relationship that we have with these companies. Right now, Google doesn't see you as a customer. They see you as a resource to be mined. Um, and I think if we want them to make the hard choices where they keep less data, where they encrypt the information they have, they need to have another viable revenue stream. You know, I, I was on a panel um, a couple of years ago with Vint Cerf, who's like the father of the web, or father of the internet, and a, and a Google executive, and I asked him, you know, why doesn't Google encrypt the data, the user data they have? If they encrypted it, the government couldn't get it. And he said, you know, that it was incompatible with their business model. If Google cannot see your data, they cannot deliver advertising off of your data. And so we need to wean Google and Facebook off of ads and onto money. 
are there our any, money. Are there any startups that are moving this direction that are trying to convince people to pay for email and other services? So there, there are backup companies. So Dropbox is a, is a free backup company that can see your data. Um, Spider Oak is a clone of Dropbox, except they secure your data, and they cannot ha they don't have ready access to it. There are services that you can use that let you send encrypted text messages or encrypted voice calls. Uh, I use a service called Silent Circle that lets me make uh, encrypted telephone calls, sort of feel like a secret agent when I'm using it. Um, and I still don't actually discuss anything sensitive over the phone. But We should have a sensitive conversation on silence. We should have a later. sensitive conversation yeah. in a parking lot, like the, you know, the, the Watergate whistleblowers. Um, you know, the place to have sensitive conversations is in person. It's never over a communications medium, because even if the call is encrypted, the government can hack into your device. And in fact, we've seen that in countries where the government has wanted to target Skype calls. Um, but I do think that consumer need to start paying for services, otherwise we're going to be stuck in this, in this world where these companies cannot put privacy first. Though privacy concerns aren't super pervasive in the American consuming public, uh, they're big enough that there's been a tremendous amount of enthusiasm about Bitcoin, uh, virtual cryptocurrency uh, that has as one of its many features, uh, the fact that it's very, very difficult to track, uh, and so it's been used for illicit purposes, uh, among other things. I wonder, do you have any thoughts about Bitcoin and whether Bitcoin can be a defense for the privacy of individuals? What I think is fascinating about Bitcoin is that it is one of a series of technologies um, that came out of a movement called the cypherpunks. And th these, this was a, a movement in the uh, mid-90s of, so sort of socially motivated uh, activist computer hackers. These were researchers who wanted to live in this crypto-utopian state where the government couldn't read their email or monitor, monitor their financial transactions. And things like Tor, which is this technology that lets you browse the web anonymously, um, came out of that movement too, um, and they were sort of dismissed as, as crazy people for, for years. Um, and it's taken a while for their technologies to, to, to sort of percolate. Um, but now we're seeing you know, mass adoption of these technologies that came from that community. I think after the recent NSA revelations, uh, I think we're going to see another round of, um, of technologies coming out of a new cyberpunks movement. I mean, in the mid-90s, to work on these technologies, you had to be paranoid. Today, to believe that the government is monitoring your phone calls isn't the, the, the thought of a paranoid person. It's, it's, you know, when you read the newspaper, you come away with, with that idea. And so I do think we're going to see uh, many more technologists and researchers working on uh, anonymous communications technology, anonymous payments, anonymous voting, all, all kinds of, of cool technologies that, that, that really are motivated by or created by technologists who want to change our world. I, I do think there's some, um, th there's some beauty in the idea that technology can circumvent, circumvent poor policy. Uh, you know, where the laws don't protect privacy, technology can. Um, I, you know, Bitcoin is an example of, 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 I think, technologists looking for an outlet where the law has, has not given them what they want. Uh, but, you know, Tor is another example, email encryption, voice communi uh, communications encryption are other examples. You know, if the law will not pr provide uh, strong protections for your, your phone conversations, well, then let technology do it uh, until the law catches up. It seems like, uh, you know, it seems as though these technologies could be exploited. So, I mean, one great advantage that we have in fighting terrorism is that terrorists tend to be incredibly sloppy and unsophisticated uh, in terms of how they deploy technology. Uh, and, and I wonder, what if you had a generation of terrorists who were not foolish, 
who were a lot more sophisticated uh, and who might be able to take advantage of some of these technologies. I mean, if you're a smart terrorist right now, you don't use a telephone. You don't use the internet. You talk in person. You collaborate entirely. Uh, in, uh, you work in small, small groups, and you and you always meet in person. If you are using technologies, there are there are enough secure communications technologies that are out there that the government cannot regulate. So, um, I think that there are always going to be um, you know people who have skills that, that can outwit the intelligence services either because they have fantastic tools or just because they don't use any modern technology. Um, you know. What you're describing is is this like theoretical um, threat. Right now, terrorists are many of these terrorists are absolute jackasses, um, and they've been caught because of their uh, inept techniques. Um, but you know, the government has pretty bad security too, and uh, and so you know there have been CIA agents in in um, in Lebanon who were who were located by Hezbollah because they were of their poor operational security there uh, the CIA snatched up of, a, of an Italian cleric a decade ago they were located because of their poor operational security and their calling patterns i mean everyone is sloppy with their communications. So what you're saying in a way is that, you know, you have the utopianism of the cypherpunks, but then you also have the utopianism of the advocates of the surveillance state, because they seem to believe that technology can keep us safe, uh, when in fact we ought to be more humble about what these technologies, what these surveillance technologies can realistically do. About two and a half years ago, Valerie Caproni, who was then the general counsel for the FBI, um, was testifying before Congress, and, and she was actually advocating for increased surveillance powers. And she said, you know, basically that terrorists are lazy, criminals are lazy, and they're gonna use the tools that are readily available to them. And in fact, it's entirely true, but terrorists are like everyone. We all use the tools that are readily available. If you buy a laptop and it doesn't include encryption, you're not gonna add it after. We use the web browsers with the default settings. We use Facebook with its default settings. That leaves us vulnerable to government surveillance. It leaves us vulnerable to hacking. It leaves us vulnerable to foreign state surveillance too. And I think what we're gonna see in the next few years is a push towards greater security. It may not be motivated by a desire to stop the NSA. It may be motivated by a desire to make identity theft more difficult or to stop foreign state actors from stealing our secrets. But I do think we're going to see a push towards greater security, and that will benefit the government, in, at least in its defensive posture. It will benefit consumers, and it will, it will, it will benefit anyone who uh, is worried about the government but doesn't know how to um, protect themselves. Well, Chris, this is enormously interesting. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.